As we wrap our series, Crying Out for Where is God When It Hurts, Paul helps us to think about strength in weakness. Because we all have a thorn in our flesh. We all have struggles and issues and weaknesses. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul reluctantly boasts, contrasting himself with the culture of the day, taking the focus off himself, talking about a vision and revelation he received from God. To prevent him from getting prideful and being exalted above others, Paul has something causing him suffering that he calls a thorn. The root word refers more to a tent stake than a splinter and means something that causes trouble in the lives of those afflicted. The way that Paul writes implies that it wasn't something secret, but but actually what testifies to Paul's character, as Charles Spurgeon writes, is that he says it was given to me. He reckoned his great trial to be a gift. He doesn't say a thorn was inflicted on me, but it was given to me. And Paul, being human, only naturally wants to escape the suffering. So his first instinct is to beg God to take it, praying continuously, living what he preaches. He experiences it physically in his flesh and mentally from Satan and spiritually from prayer unanswered the way he'd naturally hoped. So he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 to 10, that experience is worth boasting about. But I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thank you, God, for your word, for its truth and power that that go beyond anything I can say. So, Lord, would you use these words to do your work in someone today? I know that many of us are facing situations of suffering right now. At least we all have this past year in many and unique ways because of COVID, but also the discussions coming out in our culture around race and representation, politics, the danger of men and the safety of women. And because of just the ongoing daily reality of the struggle of life. I had a relatively happy childhood, except for some some small abuse. But when I was 13, my mum died quite suddenly. Not long after that, both her parents and then her brother, then another grandparent. And just before Christmas, the year before last, one of my dear friends. And I've walked alongside the sufferings of my step-siblings, of friends, of young people in my roles as youth pastor. And through the years, uh, my sisters who have been hurt by someone whose wounds have also created in me a pride, a performance, 
and a pitying of myself and looking to the people and places that will validate me in the suffering. Because we all know that suffering feels like an injustice. Because we all have this deep sense that suffering shouldn't be. That's why we ask the deepest question, why? And like John said at the start of this series, sometimes there are no easy answers. But this is not a question only that everyone asks. It's a question for everyone, for every philosophy and worldview. Why suffering? Why does God allow it? There are some good answers to why, but ultimately every thought system, every religion, every wisdom in the world falls short on this question except for one. You see, all of us ask the questions, who am I and how do I live the good life? These are the basis of most philosophies and human endeavours throughout all civilizations over time. We search for the answers to who we really are. What does it all mean? How do I live well and with purpose in the midst of it? And what hope can I have in the face of suffering? But the greatest problem is that we've run away from the source of true life, true fulfilment, and of who will save us from ourselves as we continue to create chaos because there's something broken, something missing. I believe that creation is no accident, that you are more than the random process of time, matter and chance and molecules in motion because, because behind everything that is seen is a spiritual reality and a truth that you are created with value that no one can take from you and purpose by a personal and loving creator who knows what's best for you and who holds the question and the answer of suffering together. But because we all want to do what we think is best for ourselves and we worry about not having enough because we don't feel enough, because the person who tells us we're enough is missing, we've created a life and a world built on producing and earning and if I just had this, then I'd be happy. And doing enough to work towards feeling enough and satisfying what's missing through work, through lust, through entertainment, through power, through escape and distraction and pleasure in the hope that we'll finally be content and filled up for just long enough to feel we're living the good life. We returned the favour to God and became Him ourselves, recreating ourselves in our own image and living in the words of Nietzsche as though God is dead, all the while trying to run back to Him when in fact because of separation from God, spiritually, we're the ones who are dead. This is religion and the whole world is slave to worshipping by giving our worth to things that feel good for a moment but can't make us truly whole and restore what's missing. So this results in sin, which is humanity's greatest issue in our human condition. It's the stuff we do which bring destruction and chaos and miss the goodness that God created and break his law and his best for creation for you and I and our world. And because breaking the law with sin has a cost, because justice does exist and the sentence is death, someone has to die. This is why ancient cultures used to sacrifice animals. So on that first Christmas, God himself entered our world as a baby who people hundreds of years before inspired by God, foresaw. 
And on that first Easter, at the age of 33, that baby, now a man, was tried in court and died in your place as all of your sin. The judge stepped down and paid the price himself. He took our punishment for rebellion. He suffered in our place. And while we were still sinners, he died for us on a Roman cross of crucifixion. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And after laying dead in a tomb, he rose from the grave to show that he had defeated death, that death is not the end. He did all this because he wants a relationship with you. So that instead of running away from him, trying to hide your mistakes, you would run back towards him as a loving father, as a father should be. And you can come to him just the way you are. All we need to do is accept that we can't do it ourselves. We can't fix what's broken. Can't clean ourselves up and live according to the law as much as we try and strive because God looks on the inside, not on the outside. So we can't fake it. Jesus is asked what work God actually requires and he replies to believe in the one he's sent. So instead, all God longs for is our surrender, our trust to embrace the free gift of being saved from life apart from him now and forever in a place called hell. It's a gift of forgiveness for anything you've ever done and freedom from sin and its weight that we carry around with us so that you're made right with God and whole and live knowing him now and forever in heaven. Nothing you can do in your strength to earn it. Because suffering shouldn't be. Evil really is wrong, but justice does exist and death is not the end. So when you stand before the judge, will he judge you by your sin or by the saviour in your place who already paid the price? None of this world will last forever. This isn't it, as Phil reminded us last week. There's more. This world is not our ultimate home. You were created to spend forever in the presence of the one who made you and loves your soul. Your body is a temporary home for those in transit to the real destination. I like the way C.S. Lewis says it, who wrote, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. But God loves you so much that he won't force you against the freedom of your will. If you don't choose him now, he won't force you to spend forever with him. But by choosing to turn away from your sin, with his help, trusting in Jesus instead and living the life you were really created to, you're able to see clearly to love others with a new heart and a new mind as though we're somehow born again. Jesus, who is God revealed to us, did it so that you can know forgiveness from the past, new life for today and a hope for the future, knowing who you truly are without fear and experiencing the fullness of life as it was made to be. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He heals the sick, loves the unloved, casts out demons and he can live in you so that you can do the same. And on that journey, God doesn't promise it to be easy. You then pick up his cross and follow him. He tells us that we will have trouble. It's sacrifice. There's a new cost of self and of so many of the things we once worshipped. But we now worship him. And anyone who does knows why. Because he's so good. 
and so loving and so forgiving and so exciting. Let me tell you that knowing God is an adventure and like any adventure is unpredictable. It's challenging, but so rewarding. And it's the best thing that I ever did. When you know God and when you follow Jesus, suffering is not meaningless. The unique thing about Christianity is that God enters into suffering with us to accomplish his mission of bringing all things back to himself through it and turning chaos into order. He's the one who puts it back together as it was made to be and as we feel it should be and what all of our greatest longings and stories point to. For a number of years, probably for most of my life, I've been carrying some wounds from my family of origin, which have meant that I've been afraid to show weakness. So I've navigated life the last several years being capable, self-reliant, overanalyzing so I don't make mistakes, all the while being heavily self-critical and, and honestly projecting that onto others and doing so much in my own strength and sometimes performance that God, by his grace, has stepped in and has been using situations of suffering to hold the mirror up, to show me, and inviting me into the need for transformation because these things I've carried into marriage. And we hear it all the time that there's nothing like marriage to expose your true self and your shadow side. And I was that person who thought, It would just be the trivial things because I have some self-awareness. But I've been learning recently that I need to let go of some things, that I need to lay down my own well-intended strength, which by the dominant ideologies in our world, surrendering strength is of course seen as weakness. But true strength is actually found in what the world perceives as weakness because the kingdom of God is upside down. Kind of like the upside down in Stranger Things, but much nicer. Instead of monsters, there's milk and honey. So I'm on the fast track to character development right now, where starting my role here at Coastline, so different from my previous role and job, has meant that what went before me is competency, which looks like strength and looks good on the outside, but with my character left behind, has meant that I'm in a place alongside marriage, where the two have been humbled to a lower level. But they can now grow together because they're starting from the same place. And it's been God's grace that he's done it that way. And I've been helped by some coaching and my amazing wife, Jo, and some great friends. And I've seen God at work through it all in some challenges way beyond my control and those within it. So when Paul writes, my grace is sufficient, my power works best in weakness, speaking about Jesus. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. This has been a tough lesson for me to learn because I ran from weakness. I tried to be sufficient in myself and it's a risk to lay down your own strength, to lay down what you've held on to, what's helped you survive and what protects you from the judgment of others, often from the insults and hardships and persecutions that Paul is honest about in this letter. Because we all know that when our weakness is exposed, we get embarrassed, so we cover it up. But I'm finding a contentment in my weakness that I've never experienced. As I'm more vulnerable, 
and let go of more of me, depend less on myself and experience more of Christ at work in me, that as there's less of me, less pride, less fear, less depending on myself, there's a peace that comes with the easy way of Jesus, who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are stronger when you admit that you're weak. As Tim Keller says, becoming a Christian is not about trying harder. It means transferring our trust away from ourselves and resting in God. So I've been processing, what does it mean to release myself from the expectations of perfection and posturing through intellect, ability and status, which have become my own expectations because those are the only commodities I felt that I had to make someone else proud, which manifest through my doing rather than my being and character. And often it's a paradox of trying to make something we can't be proud of, proud of us. I want to tell someone today that you are lovable. That if someone doesn't love you, it's often because of them rather than you. If there's anything wrong with you, it's, it's something else in you rather than the Heavenly Father and who he says you really are and the freedom and shame to walk in that. All of us are disciples following someone or some idea of who we should be and what we should be about and an expectation of how we fit into that. So let me ask you, who are you following? Whose likeness are you seeking to imitate? We're all on the discipleship journey of finding our identity in Christ in deeper ways as we peel back the layers, discovering who he is and who he is in you especially when we're honest about our weaknesses, because that's where his power, that's where his power really gets to work. When we set aside the pride and the posing and the pretending and the performing, that's the work of the soul, of discipleship, to be rid of false strength and instead abound in a humble authenticity of true identity. Pruning hurts. And we see it as weakness, but allowing God into the places where we've been wounded by going to the wrong people and the wrong places to validate us in our weakness needs a perspective of not just your personal pain, but of who God is and where he is, even in the places it hurts. Maybe you're in a place of suffering right now. Or maybe even as you reflect on a time of suffering, what is God doing in that place? What is he teaching you about who he is? About his grace and power and rest in his way of life. Maybe you're on the fast track where it's painful to feel the pruning, to feel the chiseling as you abide more in him than in the world. And the stories it tells that appeal to us on the surface but underneath have no power to do the real work of unseen transformation. We all need our lives to line up behind closed doors, the same as who people think we may be. When I leave this life, I'm gonna stand before God and give an account, and then all the props and the masks won't be there to perform with. 
Like Paul, I'm being rocked by some revelations right now, the good kind with realization of the always deeper layers of the awareness of God at work in us and our suffering. I've been learning that innocence is more common than my experience has taught me, that giving people the benefit of the doubt is not weakness but a hidden strength. And to assume the worst is fear posturing in self-defense to being hurt by unmet expectations. I've lost the childlikeness and in that I have a choice to be a victim or to disrupt the cycle and do something with that. Because one of the dangers of suffering is that it becomes all about me. There's what I'm going to call a trendency, and that's my term that I've coined in our culture, to glorify suffering, to not be okay and find identity in that. It's true that we need to have an understanding of God's love for us and, and love ourselves through that. But the pervasive individualism in our Western society tells us the highest virtue is to love yourself and self-help, which places the emphasis back on striving in ourselves and that we are the answer. So that without a biblical perspective, Paul may be told to just have a positive mental outlook and the power is within you to conquer the thorn. And that's a lot of pressure to depend on yourself for everything. We're told, do you and your truth and move away from and cancel people who get in the way. I want to say no. We see it everywhere now. And what do we do with that? This is a challenge to us to be counter-cultural, to demonstrate commitment in relationships, to move towards people and work through dysfunction, to love your enemy and to be part of God's story of healing and restoration. I think that eventually individualism will be shown to have no clothes. Jesus is asked the greatest way to know and love God and the focus comes off of ourself. He says, love God with all your heart, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Love your neighbour as yourself, yes, but that's not the emphasis. It's only by getting our eyes off ourselves and our suffering and looking to him who is able to do more than we can imagine that we experience what it truly is to have him live in us. Less of me, more of him, for his strength is made perfect in my weakness. He doesn't deny our wounds, but he gives us his strength, his courage, because he's overcome the world. It's not within you, it's Christ in you. And with him, we love others. I was reading a Gospel Coalition post recently that talked about a self-pity that leads to fixing our eyes on ourself, turning inwards to our wounds, where instead of being content in weakness, we lament it and it becomes our identity. So we stay in it. And it can damage relationships and prevent us from repentance. You see, escaping from pain and dwelling in pain are both unhealthy. And I've been guilty of both because it's a response of pride to suffering, to feel the need for admiration because you've suffered and you feel unnoticed. And I get it. Rather than suppressing our hurts, not grieving injustice and not seeking healing from wounds, we need to instead cry out to God, as David does in Psalm 13, laying out our complaints while still trusting God's steadfast love, looking up to Jesus and by his wounds we're healed and boasting in the cross and his strength in weakness, which crucifies pride. 
as James teaches us, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And this, of course, happens through experience over time as we surrender our hurts and our thorns to God rather than holding on to them, fixing our eyes on what is unseen and on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm grateful to Jesus that he gets my eyes off myself and I often find my joy goes up when I'm giving out to others rather than investing in myself. Not that that's bad, but don't stay there. Many of us think that real Christian maturity is when we have our act so together that we don't need to rely on God so much, moment to moment. But that's not Christian maturity at all, and I've been learning that. God deliberately engineered weakness into Paul's life so that he could be in constant, total dependence on God's grace and God's strength. It's easy to like the perseverance, but not so much the pathway. The illusion of strength and independence actually leaves us in a place where I've been learning that what hinders the work of God is my pride. Paul was only strong because he knew his weaknesses and looked outside himself for the strength of God's grace. And if we want lives of this kind of strength, like Paul, we also must understand and admit our weakness and look to God alone for the grace that will strengthen us for any task. Because it was the grace-filled Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So to end, there's wisdom in being able to have a good apologetic for the question of suffering, but there's greater wisdom in recognising that sometimes we won't know why. There's no easy explanation, and I've had to learn this too. Because what we actually need in our pain is not explanation, but revelation. Not propositions, but presence. And that's who Jesus is. That's why he never gives us the answer. Jesus says, it is. In this life, you will have suffering, but have courage. I will be with you. I've been through it, so I understand when no one else does. I do, and I am This is why social distancing has been so hard, because we just need God's love through the presence of a person, a hug and a hand. God's grace is what we really need, because it's sufficient for us. It's more than enough. Grace could meet Paul's need because it expresses three things. God's acceptance and pleasure in us. It was available all the time and it's the very strength of God. It is the power of God to fulfill what we lack in in ourselves. Lord, if I've believed the lie that I can be fulfilled elsewhere than your grace, then give me a revelation today and give me your presence, Lord, that our hearts long for to find you in the places it hurts. Because it's the revelations that Paul received in visions which sustained him through his trials and sufferings. So that's what we really need. There are moments in life where we don't just watch others find freedom from fear and purpose in pain, where we don't just sit on the sidelines and say, well, it's only possible for them because you don't know what I've been through. Would God meet with you today? Would this be your moment? I'm still processing much of this and on the journey, but I'm inviting Jesus in. 
and allowing the Holy Spirit to set my mind on Jesus, to help me in my weakness, as Paul writes in Romans, that my thorns would bless me and not curse me, so that I actually delight in them. Paul had his thorn and it was tormented by the devil. Who would have thought it? Perhaps you've looked into the face of a Christian who's always smiling. Alan Redpath writes, who never seems to have any worry, is always happy and radiant. And as you've thought about your own circumstances, you've said in your heart, I wish I were them. They just seem to have no problems. They don't have to take what I do. But perhaps you've lived long enough, as I have, as Alan has, to know that sometimes the most radiant face hides great pressures. And often the one who is being most blessed of God is being most buffeted by the devil. So coming into land, Frederick Douglass wrote that if there's no struggle, there is no progress. And he knew a lot about struggle. Struggle makes us stronger because strength is dynamic, not static. If you haven't noticed, fitness is the new fashion. But we know that strength grows. If struggle leads to progress, there's growth. And this is part of the essence of strength. When we admit our weakness, we can grow in God. If we pretend like we have it all together, and if we're prideful, if we're stubborn, if we lack being teachable, we can only take ourselves so far in our own strength. The great paradox of the upside down kingdom is that in our weakness, we receive God's strength. Humility is power. Leadership is service. What's unseen is true reality. Death to self is life in God. And that he came down from heaven as a vulnerable baby 2,000 years ago as king over all. So what does God's strength look like? A man with a stutter defying a pharaoh. A shepherd slaying a giant. The ones who didn't make it in school as the disciples. And it looks like you, who's come this far, because he chooses you to, even in your weaknesses, as a partner to participate in the ongoing story of healing and renewal. Paul was desperate in his desire to find relief from suffering. Of course we all are, it's only natural, but there are two ways of relief. It can come by removing the load or by strengthening the shoulder that bears the load. Instead of taking away the thorn, God strengthened Paul under it. This is the way God brings us into his presence. We can't receive God's strength until we know our weakness. We can't receive the sufficiency of God's grace until we know our own insufficiency. Spurgeon reminds us that suffering and soul anguish bring out the strength of God. In our weakness, people will see that it's nothing that we can do in our own strength, but it's God working through us. So where is God where, when it hurts? When I look back, I can see him behind me, ahead of me, beside me, sometimes carrying me when I've let him. When I know him more, I can hear his voice, see him more clearly see the purpose and meaning even in the places of pain. When I can't explain it, I choose to trust anyway, 
and take comfort in those who have gone before me and in the history of the Bible. It's not always easy, but as I surrender more to him, as I'm more open and more real with him and those around me, I'm seeing that his strength is more powerful in my weakness.